You can have a seat. Our kids can head up to be with our team in Redemption Kids. Uh, let me welcome everyone again to the gathering of Redemption Hill Church. Uh, my name is Tanner Turley. I serve as one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And it uh, looks like we have a lot of new faith. We, every week, I love this about our church. Uh, this is how it's been from the very beginning. Every week we have new faces. We have uh, new guests in our midst. And so uh, thank you for coming. If this is your first time, let's just give it up and welcome uh, all of our first-time guests today. I see some of you. I hope to meet all of you uh, after uh, we wrap up today. Um, but you're, you're an honored guest, and we love, we, we want, you know, there just to be more than faces. We love to put names with faces. We want to get to know people. So if at some point during the sermon, especially if it gets boring, uh, you can just, just joking, uh, you can just fill out the bottom of the Connect card on the worship guide, and um, it's just our way of getting to know you. We'll follow up. We won't bombard you uh, with emails or anything, but we'll uh, just touch base and thank you uh, for coming uh, to join us today. Well, uh, we're going to continue this morning in uh, our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be talking about what it looks like to touch the ground. We're going to be in chapter 5, verse 21. And uh, as you turn there, if you're using one of the Bibles we provide, uh, it's page 810. And if you don't have a Bible or you just want a fresh copy of God's Word, then uh, feel free to take that Bible in your hands that uh, you received when you walked in just as a simple gift from Redemption Hill. So uh, that's our gift to you today if uh, you need a new Bible. Well, um, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' authoritative message about what it looks like to follow Him. He's describing life in the kingdom of God. And so what we have here is really a word that, that shows, we have to look deeply to see this, okay? But, but it's a word that shows us what salvation looks like, all right? And, and, and theologians, just to give you a little theology this morning, okay, pay close attention, you might want to write these terms down. Uh, theologians describe salvation in three realities, okay? Three realities. Number one, there is what is called justification, okay? It's a legal term. It's like from a courtroom where someone is guilty of wrongdoing, but instead of having to pay the penalty for their wrongdoing, they are now uh, counted right in the sight of the court, or in this case, in the sight of God, and they are now declared not guilty. And the only way this happens, as we uh, touched on last week, is through not us earning our way to God through our external acts, but it's by God giving us the gift that we need, the gift of the righteousness of Jesus, so that we can have this right relationship with him and enter his kingdom. That's justification. God looks at you and he says, this person, Tanner Turley, is counted righteous because of what Jesus did for him on the cross and in his resurrection, not because anything Tanner could do for himself. That's justification. But, but, the, but the focus of the Sermon on the Mount is our, what is known as, sanctification. To be sanctified means to be set apart. It's, it's to be made holy like God is holy. And so in all of the Sermon on the Mount, I just want to keep saying this week after week after week, okay? The Sermon on the Mount really doesn't start in chapter 5. It really starts in chapter 4. Because Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to follow me, repent. That means turn around, have a change of mind that leads to a change of heart and action. And then follow me. And when you follow me, 
I'll help you to not only live for me before me, but I'll help you actually live for me and live for others because I'll make you fishers of men. And so sanctification is the process of becoming more and more and more like Jesus until God either shows up the second time in Jesus Christ. We know that is the second coming. Jesus is coming back. It may be before we die. Let's think about that. But if not, then we will go to meet him. And for everyone who is in Christ, who is justified and has gone through this process of sanctification, they will ultimately be glorified being made like Jesus, being, being fully all that God intended for us to be in the very beginning. Where Check this out. We are now freed, not just from the penalty of our sin or the power of our sin, but even from the very, yes, presence of sin, the very presence of death, the very presence of sorrow. This is what is to come, glorification. We, 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 when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. That's 1 John 3, 3. And so that's where this whole thing is going. And the Sermon on the Mount is saying, increasingly live like what you will look like on that day. So I just want to throw out a, an idea from C.S. Lewis, where he says in his book, it was really a sermon that was given, turned into a book, it's called The Weight of Glory. It's an amazing work. And in that book, C.S. Lewis says this, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Okay, now let me pause there, all right, just to get you up to speed. Okay, so what, what Lewis is saying is he's saying in the here and now, this, this society, all right, we live in the midst of possible gods and goddesses, okay? Like Lewis is not, he's a monotheist, okay? He's a Christian. He's not saying that anyone can be God. There's only one God. But what he's saying is that God made us to reflect his image, all right, that's, that's Genesis 1, and then as it becomes increasingly true, this is the entire Sermon on the Mount, the new normal, and so he's making us to be like him, but now listen, to remember that, listen, the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship. Wow. There are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. Lewis is saying this. The person God made you to be. The person he is remaking you. To be, and you will ultimately one day be in Christ, is going to be so beautiful, so pristine, so wonderful, so attractive. That if you saw with your own eyes now, you would be tempted just to fall down and to worship that person. Do you look in the mirror and say, God, oh God, please make me like that. God, 
keep making me. I've got a long way to go, God. I've got a long way to go, but, but God, keep day by day by day. Keep making me into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. This is what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. You will be that one day. So increasingly live like that today. We should go back to verse 20 of chapter 5 before we get into verses 21 and following. Because it helps us understand what we're about to read. In verse 20, Jesus tells in some summary fashion. He says, and this is like a thesis statement for the sermon, by the way. So just know verse 20. Keep coming back to verse 20. Keep coming back to verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, check this out, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this was an absolutely shocking word from the lips of Jesus. Because everyone in his day knew that there was no one more religious than the religious leaders, the Pharisees, or no one knew God's book, God's law, better than the scribes who were experts in the law. They were the ones that very scribed. They scribed it. They wrote it down again and again and again. But Jesus says, look, if you're going to enter the kingdom, you need to be more righteous than they are. How does this happen? It happens by, number one, seeing that our righteousness is not only an external righteousness. This is what the Pharisees had reduced a relationship with God down to. They had reduced it to a list of do's and don'ts. They had reduced it to a, 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 just a, a litany of, of actions that if I do this and don't do that, then I look really good in the sight of God and I look really good before other people. And Jesus is saying, look, if it's only about the external, just your, simply your actions, then you've missed the whole point. Because God is not after your actions first. He's after your heart. God cares about our thoughts and our motives and our desires and what we love. And he, because God knows he made us with, with, with a soul that, that is just thirsty for God. And as God changes our heart and as he gives us his salvation and his righteousness, then that will come out in our actions. God sees the heart. God sees below the surface. He sees your heart this morning. He sees your heart. This is why Octavius Winslow, a man that I read a lot in seminary, he says, he says this, the, re the religion of the Lord Jesus is only powerful as it is experienced in the heart. The whole Sermon on the Mount. Heart, 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 heart. And so Jesus is saying, look, it's about the internal. It's about not just the letter of the law, but it's about the spirit of the law. It's about the principles behind the actions that reveal the heart of God. This is what, this is what Jesus, he says that I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to set it aside. I came to fulfill it and uphold it. And so what Jesus is about to do is he's going to say, you've heard it said, something about the law, and he's going to say, but I say to you, there's something deeper there that you've missed. Jesus is not opposed to the law. Jesus is opposed to a faulty interpretation and application of that law. And so Jesus shows up just to give the true meaning, to give the true application of what we're about to read. 
And then, and then let me just say this, not only external, internal, and letter of the law, spirit of the law, but also he is undercutting a system that would reduce, don't miss the air quotes, the law to an achievable standard. Like as if anyone could keep the entire law. I mean, come on now. Ridiculous. But this is what they reduce their relationship with God to. Rather than, rather than, don't miss this, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's verse 48 of chapter 5. Skip, skip there. You therefore, you, you catch on this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God is the standard. The Father's heart is what we're chasing after. This is what he's making us into. Complete, mature, perfect in his sight. And so with this idea, with this idea, an exceeding righteousness... Now Jesus gets very specific, and he gets down to two common realities in our lives that just don't look like him, anger and lust. And so let me read these verses for us, and then we're going to break them down together. So this is what Jesus says in verse 21 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray one more time. Father, even now, God, even now, would you arrest our attention so that our hearts can look like your heart. We pray this in the name of of Jesus. Amen. I think one of the major ideas here that Jesus is conveying as he's talking about anger and lust 
is this idea of what I want to call, and this even phrase was brought back up to me on Friday morning as I was at a gathering of pastors and church members across New England, and the, the person who was leading worship uh, was talking about uh, God changing us and how that God calls us into, are you ready for this, a violent, a violent repentance. So I want us to think about what God is calling us to in this idea of a violent repentance. So my first encouragement for us this morning is to violently repent of anger that rises from our hearts. What Jesus is doing here is he's uh, quoting the Old Testament, of course, and he's bringing out one of the commandments from the Ten Commandments. The Sixth Commandment says, thou shalt not murder. In other words, thou shalt not take someone's life in a premeditated way to destroy their life, okay? That's, so, so, so someone may be uh, killed by a car accident or some kind of tragedy that was not intended. That's not murder, okay? But murder is a willful taking of someone's life. And it's interesting that why did Jesus, I'm not sure why Jesus, I haven't even read scholars who are, uh, would say this uh, necessarily, I'm sure some have, but, but perhaps Jesus is bringing this to the table first because there is no more heinous crime than to take someone's life. And why, why is that? Because people, we just, I've already said it, they're made in the image of God. And so because we are made in God's image, we have infinite value. A life should never be taken. But Jesus goes on and he says, look, it's more than murder. It's, if, if your standard is just, hey, don't take someone's life, then you've missed the heart of the law. He says, but I say to you, whoever is angry with their brother is liable to judgment. And I just want us to think about what, what's going on here because there's just so much. There's just so much in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is, is, is presenting himself as the true and greater Moses. We're going to read through Exodus this month, by the way, in our Bible reading plan, so just enjoy. All right? So he's presenting himself as the true and greater Moses because Moses met with God on the mountain he received the law from God, and then he came down the mountain, and what did he say? The Lord God says. The Lord God says. The Lord God says. But Jesus shows up. And what does he say? But I say to you. We can't get around it if we're fair with the Bible. We cannot get around the fact that at every turn, Jesus is saying, I am God. Jesus is God. He has divine authority. Whatever he says goes. We cannot reduce him to a teacher. We cannot reduce him to a miracle worker. He will not allow us to. But I say to you, he taught with absolute authority, the authority of God. So much so that the end of this, is a little preview here, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, do you know what people were saying? Chapter 7, verse 28, when Jesus finished saying these things, guess what happened? The crowds were 
astonished. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So I just want to ask you, I just, this, is a, this is a bit of a sidebar, but this is important, okay? I just want to ask you when, you, when you come before the word of God, when you worship God and you sing songs of praise and you pray, do you, do you feel his authority? I believe there are times, and to some degree, Anytime we come to the Bible or we pray or we, we're in the, like, I know we're always in the presence of God. God is everywhere. I'm not present, but, but sometimes we're not focused on him. You know what I'm saying? So when we turn our focus to him and we're, we're praising and we're singing and we're praying, we should feel the weight of his authority. Like, like God is here and that like causes me to step back. I mean, do you ever feel this in your relationship with God? Just, just kind of overwhelmed. Like, if God is glorious, have you ever been in the presence of glory? It will knock you down. Get ready. I mean, every time that, that, that the, in the Bible, when, when someone, like, when God reveals his glory, like, people just, whew. But I say to you, But I say to you, authoritative words, not just murder, but if you have anger in your heart, you're liable to the same judgment. If you insult your brother, uh, the the, the word here, you can see in the footnote, the the Greek word is raka. It's a term of abuse. It's a a way to degrade someone, to demean someone. The insults that either you receive or, yes, you give to other people are flowing from a heart that is angry toward that person. To say you fool is is an attack on their character and their identity. It's flowing from anger. And Jesus says anger, insult, calling someone a fool, it's all liable to judgment, not just murder. And it's a strong word here. He says, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Again, the Greek word is Gehenna. It's referring to the Hinnon Valley, where if you look in the Old Testament, there would be pagan sacrifices, human sacrifices to the, to the pagan god Moloch. And then in Jesus' day, it was used to burn trash day and night. They just burned. And so this was a picture of a fiery judgment that awaits everyone who turns their back on God and doesn't come back to him. And Jesus says, if, if, if anger characterizes your life, if you don't turn back to me, to let me heal you of that anger, to let me root out that anger in your heart to where you're no longer angry with people, but you're loving them and you're kind and you're serving them, then you need to be fearful of judgment that awaits those who do not know God. And so let's dive a little deeper into anger. It must be dealt with. What is anger? Robert Jones, in his book, Uprooting Anger, defines anger in this way. You might want to write this down. Anger is our whole personed, active response of negative moral judgment 
against a perceived evil. All right? Anger is our whole person response, active response of negative moral judgment against a perceived evil. Let's just break this down. Okay, number one, it's active. So we can just kind of be tempted to say, like, I am angry. I like, like, it's like it happened to us, and we just have it on the inside, but it's not something we're doing. But anger in the Bible is something that we do. It's an action. We are angry toward people or God. So, so, so then that, that helps us understand. It's, it's not only just an active, but it's a whole personed response. It's not simply an emotion. Our emotions are tied up in anger, but our emotions are built off of our beliefs, what we believe about God, what we believe about our world, what we believe about the persons in front of us, what we believe about values and principles and all of that. Okay, So it's, it's not just emotion, but it's belief, it's desires, as we'll see more in a minute. It's, it's how, what, what we're going after, what we're chasing after, what we love. You mess with what I love, I will get angry at you. It's a whole person response of a negative moral judgment against a perceived evil. And so, so anger arises. You, you know how this works, right? Like anybody angry? <laughs> I mean, like anybody just get angry this week? Something, maybe it was something light, maybe something that was not so light. But whenever anger rises up in our hearts, it's because we're saying that is wrong. That was wrong. My wife gets angry at me sometimes. <laughs> but let me just say, let me just say, <laughs> man, I shouldn't have started like that. I shouldn't have started like that. Uh, she has, let me just go into perceived evil, okay? Uh, perceived, there's a perception, okay, of, of it can be, listen, <laughs> the perceived evil can be accurate or inaccurate. And so when Marsha gets angry at me, 99.999999% of the time, it's a righteous anger. She's perceiving that. And you know when this happens the most? This is funny. Thank God this is how it works in our marriage, all right? But the time, I was just telling a friend about this the other day. Uh, the time that, that we kind of fight and quarrel the most is, are you ready for this? When I'm behind the wheel. I'm t- like, we live, we live on High Street, one of the busiest streets in Medford. And so it starts just when I'm backing out of the driveway. You know what I'm saying? It just, I cannot get around it. And so she gets righteously angry at me. T, what are you doing? You should have waited. Be patient. The kids are in the back seat. And, and, and I'm just saying, Relax, chill out, this is fine. And you know what I do? Like, I, instead of saying, you're right, I start defending myself. I start touting my driving record, you know? I mean, I haven't had, a, I haven't had an accident that was ever recorded, okay? But I, I haven't had an accident. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Yes, that may, may my driving record continue for the next 21 years. Come on, clean. But... Just I was I was on uh, in high school and I was driving my my dad's old this is wow it's fun '89 uh, Aerostar Star van and uh, the Domino's guy was in front of me and I just kind of eased I just bumped him you know 
And so he got out, and his van was like an 82, you know what I'm saying? So he just, he's like, hey, we're good. Don't worry about it. Like, my record's clean. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? And like, just like, relax. And you're, you're acting, I can't say that. Uh, Oh, righteous anger, sinful anger, right? But this is what James talks about in James chapter 4. He says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The desires in you, the loves in you, the hopes and dreams in you. I'm just trying to get there on time, you know? Don't you want to be on time? Sorry, should have got ready earlier. That's on me too. Um, he goes on, he says, you desire and you do not have. So what? So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. It's what's going on on the inside. It's what we want the most. If you, if you, if you disrupt my opportunity to get what I want, then I'm going to fire back at you. And we need the help of God to help us have his heart. Yes, to be angry when it's right to be angry. We should be angry at injustice. We should be angry at true wrongdoing. I would just ask you this morning, like, what makes you angry? What makes you angry? Because how you answer that question will tell you and all of us how in line your heart is beating with the heart of God. Are you angry at actual sin? Are you angry at that which detracts from God and his kingdom? When you are angry, are there other godly characteristics that are like there's self-control? There's measured words. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Proverbs, go read the Proverbs. If you, listen, please, if you, if you struggle with anger, read the Proverbs. Read the Proverbs and buy that book and keep reading the Bible. But Jesus shows us how serious this is with two examples, okay? Verse 24, he says, uh, 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar there, remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift, go and be reconciled. This is how important this is. Jesus is saying in very practical terms, if you have something against someone else, it would be better for you to not show up at 10.30 a.m. at Medford High School and go and get that right. Because what we forget, what we forget is that our horizontal relationships are always an indicator of our vertical relationship. So God just says it again and again. This is half of the book of 1 John at the end of the Bible. He says, look, you can't say we're good if you're not good. Go get it right. Go, go, go reconcile. Like, like come in humility and state what you did that was wrong. And by the way, not just in a general way, like, oh, my bad. <laughs> but like the specifics, like, this is what I did. I know this hurt you, I'm really sorry, and I won't do it again with the help of God. Reconciliation. God is very concerned about, you know, you know what really, I, I'm a young pastor still. Did you, did you guess that? 
One thing that really bothers me as a young pastor is when I hear that there, there's friction in relationships in our church. Sometimes that's marital friction. Sometimes that's friction between friends. And it leads me to pray all the more. God, bring them back together. Bring them back together. Cause them, cause them to, 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 to come with a, a violent repentance that says, God, I need you. I need you in this situation to humble ourselves before God and before them and to say, I am wrong. Forgive me. God wants us to be united. He wants us to be reconciled. It's only going to happen when we humble. Like Jesus is giving very strong terms here, is he not? You're talking about worship and what, like, what's more important than worship? Get it right. It's a violent repentance. Number two, violently repent of not only anger that rises from your heart, but also lust that rises from your heart. 27 and 8, you have heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. What is adultery? A sexual uh, relation, sexual act uh, outside of the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. That's adultery. But Jesus heightens the stakes. Exceeding righteousness is what we're after. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let me just say from the outset, this word, as Jesus says, Everyone. Can you, can you underline 28? Everyone. Everyone who looks at a woman. This is not, this often is, is, is a young man's battle, but it's not just a young man's battle. It's every man's battle. And Jesus would say the same thing to women. Like, 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 this is for everyone. Men, women, married, singles, young, old. This is for all of us. Do not look with lustful intent. This is, when, when Jesus uses this Greek word, blepo, blepo he, he's saying, do not linger there in such a way that you begin desiring in a sexual way. So, so let's, just, let's just be clear. Jesus is not denouncing, saying that person is beautiful. He's not. Like, there are beautiful people in the world. There are beautiful beauties in the eyes of the whole, right? Anyway, and we're all beautiful in the sight of God. Preach. But, you know, it's like, it's not wrong. In fact, if anyone says my wife is ugly, I'm going to get sinful. I mean, I'm righteously angry. Thank you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's, a, that's for CDU. That's just wrong. But if you lost out, you lost after anyway. 
This is so serious. This is a major problem in our culture. We live in a hyper-sexualized culture. Where now? Where now? It's like not like the magazines in the father's closet. Like it is everywhere, at our fingertips, anywhere we go. We can access pornography. We can view things for our own self-gratification. This is what lust is. Lust is self-love. Lust is about you. If you are lusting, if you are wanting something that doesn't belong to you, it's about you. It's the antithesis of true love. True love pours out for the sake of someone else, for the benefit of someone else. That's, by the way, this is God's love. God just pours out. He gives of himself for our benefit. But lust is self-love. It's about self-gratification. It's about how I can just not care about the person, but I can care about myself. And as we pointed out a few weeks ago in a sermon on sexual abuse, when a man lusts after a woman or a woman lusts after a man or any combination of those means that is not according to God's design in marriage relationship between a man and a woman, then there is what is happening here is the objectification. I only, I only like in this moment, I just want you for what you look like. I just want you for what you can offer me. Not just pornography, like any, any sexual, like temptation abounds, even within relationships that can be God-glorifying. If you're engaged, listen up. Timing, God's timing. Wait, be patient for God's timing. We objectify and ultimately we desoul the person. Because we're not treating them as someone made in the image of God. We're treating them as someone that exists to gratify me. And so why is this so egregious? Why, why is lust so egregious? Number one, it is an affront to God. God gave us sex as a beautiful gift. He wants it to be enjoyed. He wants it to be a life-giving expression of, 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 of how he has made man and woman one in marriage. So this goes way beyond sex. Sexual oneness, relational oneness, emotional oneness, physical oneness, spiritual oneness. This is God's gift to us. And to lust after someone else is to say, God, I don't give a rip about you or your glory in this moment. And it's an affront to your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor, two greatest commandments. When you lust after someone, you are tearing them down. You are your future spouse, if God has that, or your current spouse. Or your brother and sister, who that person belongs to ultimately, perhaps. Neighbor, neighbor, neighbor. Let's not. Parents, people, fr- like 
is an affront to our neighbor. And it is also an affront to yourself. Because when we sin in this way, we are disrupting our fellowship with God. We, we, are, we, are, we are just pulling ourselves back from the intimacy that God wants us to enjoy with him. And so what should we do? If, if this sin is that egregious, not just a physical act of adultery, but any, any lust, any, any sexually immoral act, what should we do? I don't know how Jesus could put it in stronger terms. He makes two hyperbolic statements, okay? Hyperbole is, is an exaggeration of, 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 a, of a metaphor or a statement to kind of bring something home. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It would be better for you to be blind than to not enter the kingdom of, of heaven. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cut it off. Do whatever it takes. Get rid of it so that you can honor God, so that you can honor them, so that you can enjoy what God made you for. How much more violent could it be than tearing out your eye or cutting off your hand? Jesus is saying this is serious. We live in a culture, and God forgive us when we help lead church culture to say, you know what? Holiness doesn't matter. To be holy is to be set apart. It's to be like God. So for a pastor or for a church to not talk about God is holy, let's be like him, is to, to, to forget about God and who he is. Are you with me? So there's a seriousness and there's an urgency. Now, don't wait. Yes, sanctification is a, is a process. But kill it now. Let me give you a framework for fighting against lust. It's super simple, and yet it will get you there. I, I, I just know, because it's so based on this truth that will set you free. It will get you there. It will get you there. It helps me get there day after day after day, fighting against temptation, anger, lust. It'll take you there. Number one, refuse your temptation in Jesus' name. Are you with me? Are all eyes on me right now? No, they're not. And I'm going to ask all eyes on me right now. This is serious. If you lack the humility to look at me right now, you probably lack the humility to look God in the eye and see how much he cares about your holiness. Refuse your temptation in Jesus' name. So, so we, we resist. We say no. We say no to ungodliness. We say yes to godliness and righteousness. This is what we talked about last week. Put your yes in the yes of Christ. So we flee. Like sometimes the best thing that we can do is just to flee from temptation. So whatever that means, if you need internet software, if you need to unsubscribe from cable, like whatever you need to do, take out Netflix, whatever you need to do, 
delete apps, whatever you need to do, put it to death. Hey, if your phone causes you to sin, go get a flip phone. I, I mean, it's funny, I agree, but I'm not, I mean, I'm serious too. Whatever it takes. Refuse, flee. But we do so, listen, we do so in Jesus' name. I love we, the, There's power in the name of Jesus. This is how we fight our battles. We look to him. We come to the cross again and again and again. We say, Jesus, you are enough. The only way, listen, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old and ugly and sinful affection is by the expulsive power of a new and greater affection. So we just say, Jesus, you are better. Jesus, you are better. Jesus, you are better than that image. Jesus, you are better than these hours in the dark. God, Jesus, you are better. Bring your light, Jesus. Refuse your temptation in Jesus' name. Replace your temptation with Scripture. Just flip back a chapter, and you'll see Jesus tempted in the wilderness by Satan, and Satan is so crafty, and he'll get you in subtleties, right? It'll just be one little image, and da-da-da, and then this, and now this, and then this, and then all of a sudden, you're just done. You're addicted, and you are done, apart from the grace of God. But, But when Satan starts feeding you lies then you start feeding him the truth. Come on. You can talk back to Satan. You can talk back to the demonic. When you hear these lies, I know that doesn't sound like crazy in a Baptist church, right? But let's just be biblical, all right? Like, talk back. Jesus is better. This will not satisfy me. He's the living water. He is the bread of life. He is the way. This is not the way. Jesus is the way. Do not let even a hint of sexual immorality be named among you, church. That's what we're talking back. I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look, look, look lustfully at a woman. Job, whatever chapter and verse. Turn your eyes from worthless things. Psalm 119, whatever verse. Replace it with Scripture. Then pray another way. You, even as you're reciting scriptures, it must lead you to that, right? Like, God, help me. Help me out of this. Help me to say no. This is what touch the ground is all about. This is what touch the ground is all about. There's a violent repentance that is there for us if we would humble ourselves and say, God, I need you in these moments. God, I can't do this without you. I need you to set me free. I need you to fix my eyes on you and not all of these other things. We pray the other way into purity. That means, is there not a promise? Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. God, I want to see you. I want to see you. I'm done with all this mess. I want to see you, God. Pray the other way. And as you refuse and as you replace and as you pray, (laughs) then you can lift your hands. Then you can lift your hands. And you can praise God for the victory that he gives you over that temptation. 
And then you can be ready. <laughs> you can be ready to do it all over again. Violently repent of the lust that rises in our hearts by touching the ground in humility before God. That's it. How do you uproot anger? You humble yourself before God. God, take those selfish desires out of me. Help me to see people and situations as you see them. In humility before God, uproot this anger out of my life, God. Uproot this lust out of my life, God, so that I can live for you, so that I can honor you with my life. I'll never forget, I was in a seminary, and I had some, some battles in this area in college, and I was hanging out with a pastor that was becoming one of my closest friends, the man that married Marsha and I, and we were walking through the mall. And, uh, you know, sometimes you ask pastors questions, like, for the other person, but, you know, it's really for you. And uh, so I never, never forget, uh, I said, JP, because uh, I think he had, like, brought it up, maybe some other person or pastor, God forbid, pray for pastors, um, struggling with lust or porn or I don't know what. And so it just was an opportunity for me to say, like, how do you counsel someone? And I'm thinking, like, he's going to give me eight-step process for how to fight lust. And he said this. Nothing will keep you from that except a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. Falling more and more in love with Jesus. Coming to him again and again and again. Touching the ground in his name again and again. Hey, what's up with this? You, you know what? This, I didn't even know why. This is a play uh, for Mefford High. Uh, like, you, you want to see how you fight? You want to say, like, you get shut in with God. You know what I'm saying? Don't trip, Pastor Tan. You just, get, you just get on your knees, shut in with God. That's loud. But that's it. This is how we win the battle. We, we touch the, we get on our knees, and we say, God, you do. How, how are we going to see the city change? Mateus, can you get me up here? Am I good? doesn't matter. I'm just something. <laughs> Let's worship our way into revival. Let's worship our way into awakening. Let's worship, let's, let's live lives that are so attractive because we're not angry, but kind and loving. We're not lustful, but we're so pure and full of self-control that people say, what is up with you? You don't want to go to the places that I'm going. You don't want to see the things I'm seeing. You, you respond differently when this or that happens in the workplace. What is going on? Jesus, 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 Jesus. Thank you, God. Stephanie, you can come up and start praying. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. That you are concerned this much about us. We're humbled, God. We're humbled. That you keep, God, you keep running after us. I just want to, God, I want to pray for those that are really caught in the throes of, of maybe a sexual addiction or, or they're just constantly getting angry, angry at their spouse, angry at their coworkers. God, that you would set them free in Jesus' name today. God, our eyes are on you. Help us to worship our way into your heart. 
to be freed from everything that you desire for us to be freed from. We can't do it without you, God. We need you. And so, Father, would you have your way with us? God, I pray even right now, Lord, that we would just lay it down. We would surrender. We would say, I'm following, no turning back. No turning back to that sin. I've decided to follow Jesus. God, thank you. We pray in his name. Amen. Here's what I'd like for you to do. Stephanie's going to start playing in just a moment. And, and listen, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper if our, if our ushers can come forward. But the Bible says that we should partake in a worthy manner. Part of that is that if we're harboring sin, unconfessed sin in our lives, maybe it's in this area of anger, maybe it's in this area of lust, maybe it's in some other manifestation of that which doesn't look like Jesus. Before you come to receive and remember of the sacrifice of Jesus, would you confess that sin before God? And would you just say, God, change me. Lord, I can't do it without you. Maybe your knees need to touch the ground. Find a spot. There's plenty of room down here. Touch the ground. And don't do it alone. I wanted to say that with a prayer, pray your way the other way. Don't do it alone. Pull in a pastor. Pull in a community group leader. Pull in a friend to help you fight this battle. Jesus is worthy. This is why we do everything we do as Christians. He's worthy. He invited me to follow him. I have no clue. This is not a show. It's not, I have no clue why he would ask me to follow him. Who am I? And so listen. Before you come, pray. Seek the face of God. And then come and rejoice. Because victory is ours. Because our sin has been dealt with. Because he has forgiven us of every sinful thought, desire, and deed. It's all washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've got to pray again. Thank you, Jesus, for the forgiveness that is found in your cross. As we come to remember your sacrifice on our behalf, God, we just say thank you. The, the Lord's Supper is known as the Eucharist, mean, a word meaning thanksgiving. This is a thanksgiving meal, God, saying thank you for freeing us from our sin. God, thank you for being better. Thank you for calling us to live our lives for you. We pray in the powerful, wonderful, beautiful name of Jesus. Jesus.